0: Hello and welcome to the ANCDS podcast. Today's guests are members of the ANCDS TBI writing group. Professor Solberg is known internationally for her pioneering work in the field of cognitive rehabilitation. Her research focuses on the development of treatments that help people with acquired brain injury manage cognitive impairments. Her work includes evaluating treatment protocols for individuals with persistent cognitive effects following concussive injuries, the design and evaluation of assistive technology tools to support adolescents and adults with acquired brain injury function optimally in their communities, and development of processes to facilitate patient-centered goal setting. Dr. Solberg has contributed to a number of evidence-based practice guidelines supported by the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences and sits on several national committees working on interdisciplinary practice in cognitive rehabilitation. She has authored two seminal textbooks in the field, including her new 2023 text titled Transformation of Cognitive Rehabilitation. Professor Solberg has been teaching and conducting research at the University of Oregon since 1994. She teaches graduate courses related to cognitive rehabilitation and evidence-based practice and provides clinical supervision in the Brain Injury and Concussion Clinic, or the BRICC, in the College of Education HEDCO Clinic. Dr. Therese O'Neill perozzi is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Northeastern University, a research faculty member of the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, Harvard Medical School Traumatic Brain Injury Model System, and a practicing clinician. She is the author, co-author of numerous peer-reviewed publications spanning a broad range of topics, including brain health, cognitive communication function, and neuroplasticity. First, I'd like to welcome uh, Therese O'Neill-Perozzi and McKay-Solberg to the ANCDS podcast. Welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. you. It's good to be here.
0: So happy to have you both here. Um, As uh, uh, two of the members with the ANCDS TBI writing committee, um, I'd like to kind of kick things off by asking you to tell me a little bit about that writing committee. some questions that came to mind for me as I was learning about it were um, who the members are, what makes up that writing committee, um, how are they selected and become a part of that, uh, what is the directive, what is the mission, what what are we trying to accomplish um, through that committee?
2: I can jump in and give that uh, give that a whirl. Um, maybe it's helpful to have a few specific points about ANCDS, which is, an organization that's comprised of practitioners and researchers that are interested in neurogenic communication disorders. And we have an independent, but very close working relationship with ASHA, given overlapping membership um, and leadership. And we have this specific board certification within ANCDS. And then within ANCDS, um, we've developed this evidence-based clinical research committee the purpose of that is to produce guidelines and systematic reviews for evaluating and treating uh, neurogenic communication disorders. And we've been around, um, I think it was established uh, in 1997. Um, our particular subgroup that Teresa and I are here to share with you is the Traumatic Brain Injury uh, Subcommittee. And we be, Originally began uh, publishing work in that specific area in 2007.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about um, the direct purpose of the ANCDS writing group?
2: Yes. Um, the groups are really established to ensure promotion of kind of scientific clinical practice and make sure that clinicians had access to. Um, you know, kind of pre-filtered evidence that would distill down what uh, research has shown. And as the field grows, um, it's really nice to have pre-filtered evidence and have somebody give a systematic review or a a, a scoping review or state-of-the-art review. There's different types of reviews, certainly. And one thing that I'm particularly excited about, and I think um, Joanne Silks has been responsible for, who's the current head of the overall evidence-based clinical research committee, um, is to make a repository of tools that support literature reviews, so that we'll, um, and look at the rigor and, and the level of evidence. So whether it's the Pedro that helps us analyze um, randomized controlled trials and see how rigorous they are or a couple of instruments that are help us look at the rigor of single case experimental designs like the robinet and the sced Um, that's part of what i think the overarching um, purpose is is to make sure that we're really steeped in evidence-based practices and as these tools have become available, and as there's other groups that are, um, uh, you know, like in our area, the INCog or the um, ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, that has lots of evidence based, so those um, as that's as there's more uh, resources for that, we've been able then to. Uh, do a little bit more translation of the evidence in addition to doing some of the evidence reviews ourselves.
1: And, you know, I would add that each of our papers includes that methodology that we do use um, um, that explains the rigor, you know, and attention we've paid um, to what McKay has has just described. Um, You know, a lot of our time and effort goes into multiple people um, doing you know the same reviews independently and comparing evaluations and then discussing discrepancies and there really is a lot of um, exactitude in, in those efforts um, related to validity and reliability of our decisions and you know what we're uh, what we're going to be writing about that topic mm-hmm. that we've been researching uh, to disseminate. Mm-hmm.
0: The two of you are, are part of that committee. Who else sits on the committee? I think I've interviewed uh, Peter Muhlenbrook, who may also sit on the committee. Um, Who else is part of that um, traumatic brain injury writing group?
2: Currently, um, Brian Ness is directing it. And so um, he is our connection then with um, the larger ANCDS group. Um, And so he provides kind of the leadership with us. And we've got Peter, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. we've got Lindsey Biome, Uh, we've got Rick, Lemoncello.
1: Am I forgetting anyone, Therese? Let's see, we've
2: been together. I think that's
1: everybody currently. Um, Recently, and on some of the publications that we may be talking about today, Sheila McDonald Mm -hmm. was um, a member as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: And there's been many iterations. I think I'm the only one that was in the uh, very beginning back in 2007, and... um, Probably a testimony to how impactful and uh, how wonderful it is to work with the colleagues that are interested in advancing um, guidelines and kind of clinical translation. So um, uh, we're having a really good time right now, I would say. <laughs> um, uh, so the current group that Teresa and I were mentioning has been together quite a I don't know what do you think three years, we've more longer? I'd say longer,
1: actually, okay. maybe close to five. Yeah. Five.
2: Oh, that's what happens. <laughs> You're <laughs> having a blast. You move forward in time. <laughs> yeah, time's <laughs> flying.
0: Um, okay. Um, you know, several of the papers that you sent me, um, several of which I think will link to the ANCDS description, um, seemed largely to target, and hopefully I'm catching everything, but... Um, social communication uh, as one of the big kind of topic areas and then um, also with uh, a return to work and the SLP's role in uh, return to work sort of um, vocational rehab or just that general concept Um, how are topics selected within within the group is that something that's kind of a the group gets together and kind of brainstorms areas of interest for specific people, or, or are you assigned certain topics? How does how does that go?
2: Well, um, and Therese, feel free to jump in. Um, it's interesting, um, what I've seen over time is the, the group uh, evolve in a way. Uh, way back when there was a big hole and a gap in just basic clinical guidelines that were tied to evidence, to scientific evidence. And as there's been more um, groups that have done um, rigorous reviews in the TBI arena, our group has changed um, and evolved to do a little bit more clinical translation. Um, And so primarily we've, I would say in the last five years, really uh, identified gaps uh, needs um, that also match expertise of all of the, the researchers that are on this oh. committee. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add, Therese. Um,
1: yeah, I, I would love to add a few things. Um, we try to respond also to members' re- ANC members' requests for things. Uh. So if anybody listening to this podcast has... Um, some topic ideas for us. We are totally open and open to hearing about them because we really are trying to do our work for you, to empower you and to inform you um, in clinical practice. Um, um, To some of your other questions, Zach, um, it's a very collaborative process. I think all members participate in all projects and conversations about what to do next. And depending on the topic, um, one of the group may have a real expertise in the area, so they kind of take the leadership mm-hmm. role um, for that particular project mm-hmm. or paper. Um, but we, we, we're just all so passionate about all aspects of our field that there's um, a really, a real strong motivation to uh, contribute in multiple ways by everybody and everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, I understand. I'm glad that you put out that, um, the kind of call for um, clinical, topic interests I guess from other members Um, would that be I guess directing them to sort of the social media platforms or is there maybe that's something we talk offline to what would be best for them to probably you know they could do it that way Mm -hmm. Brian Ness as McKay said is is currently our
1: leader Um, emailing him emailing McKay myself any which way, uh, is easiest. Um, we'll do something with it. (laughs) Okay.
0: Understood. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that kind of turn to more of the clinical focus. And I really appreciate that, that, um, that focus of the writing group, um, to identify these areas where there are, I don't know, I guess holes in clinical practice, um, As somebody who practices um, within the adult population myself. Having it kind of set up as a guide um, has been really helpful. Um, I appreciated that with the return to work paper Um, from the from the aspect of like here are some specific things to consider um, as well as providing a case study throughout it. uh, That was really helpful to really take take the recommendations and put them into, um, you know, a real life case. Um, that was very helpful. And I guess is that's that's kind of the format that the group hopes to continue moving forward with is not always a clinical clinician's guide, but kind of always with that in mind of read it and then take it and practice it. I think, um, well, first of all, Teresa and I are tickled
2: that you, Particularly called out that paper because mm-hmm. the return to work for people who are recovering from brain injury is something that we've spent a good part of our careers thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, a great paper to bring up for a couple reasons because it's an exemplar for a few different components. Um, one is, as you point out, it was a clinical tutorial. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them are that, but it was meant um, to really. Uh, you know, there were some uh, specific learning objectives that we had. Um, in, in that case, we really wanted to help uh, speech language pathologists understand a little bit more about vocational return to work models, about uh, what had been published for what kinds of programs um, that uh, might facilitate return to work. And educate the speech-language pathologists about their potential roles across different settings that could help facilitate return to work. Um, and as Therese mentioned earlier, that's an example of a paper where we brought on another um, colleague. This, in this case, a vocational rehabilitation count someone who'd published and done work in that field in order to make sure that the paper was interdisciplinary. So that paper was unique in some ways as the clinical tutorial and, and inviting um, guest author to make sure that we were uh, uh, integrating um, our field with the vocational rehabilitation field. And then it also sort of is an example of um, where there was a really a clinical gap that we all felt um, as, a, as a writing group needed to be addressed.
1: I think to really drive that point home, in in that paper, we talk about the fact that research has found that less than half of adults with moderate to severe TBI are employed one year post-injury. That's not very many, and that number doesn't improve a whole lot over time. And we also know from the research and our own experience as practicing clinicians that individuals with mild TBI who often may, at least initially, return to work, really struggle in that effort, a lot of them. Um, and uh, in many cases, um, reduce their work or even stop working. And so I think, as McKay was saying, we felt as a group that this has, this the return to work and the role of the SLP just hasn't gotten enough attention over time. And so, really thought that the tutorial approach could you know, um, help inform and empower um, and and really help facilitate SLP's engagement in return to work efforts um, with TBI survivors.
0: Absolutely. Um, when I saw the tutorial within the title, you know, that was like, that's the one I'm reading. You know, give me something that <laughs> I can take and put into practice right away. Um, just had a team meeting today with the other um, SLP colleagues in my clinic, you know, discussing okay, where are areas that we can develop more interaction with other clinics, um, with other clinicians, with other disciplines? Um, my clinic is um, an outpatient rehab facility, and, you know, we, we have the team of SLPs, but then also the OTs and the PTs. Um, but as we were discussing it, you know, a lot of, a lot of topics came up of, you know, meeting with neurology, meeting with Neuropsychology and the various specialties therein, meeting with social work. Um, and then I brought up, really from preparing for this interview, more of the vocational rehab. I realized that that is a really mm-hmm. large gap in my practice. Um, and it's, it's something that I know that the county um, within which we sit, the Davidson County out here in Tennessee, in Nashville, Tennessee, that there is a vocational rehab program, um, that there are return to work programs, but it's just something I knew so little about. Um, so yeah, learning, learning what I learned from, the, from this paper just really inspired me to, okay, I need to collaborate more with, um, with some vocational rehab providers some specialists. Um, and specialists. In writing that paper and, and collaborating with uh, vocational rehab Um, I guess, specialist. Um, Was there anything that really stood out as like, wow, she really or he really pointed out something that we very much had not considered or that we SLPs don't include in the practice?
2: One thing that comes to mind also based on on your comments, Zach, is the importance of advocacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have excellent implementation, you can have you know science-backed treatment protocols and models but if you don't have funding if your uh, patient or your clients don't have access it doesn't matter how wonderful your tools are if people can't access it and i think vocational rehabilitation this arena is a, a very good exemplar of that there's uh, in most places, there are substantial limitations in access to vocational supports, um, particularly for people with brain injury. You know, you can help way more back injuries than you can help mm-hmm. somebody with a significant brain injury get back to work. So just from a funding perspective alone. Um, so I think, you know, one In in addition to sort of saying, here's ways within the current systems that speech language pathologists can help facilitate the return to work process, our hope also is that we'll all uh, advocate in our communities because the constraints are different. It is often by state or by county, Um, so that, that feels important
1: as well. And and I might add, I think for me one of the take home points to take home points was um, that you can begin working on return to work when patients are inpatients. Like it, it's not it's it's never too early to start thinking about this for patients that you know have that goal or may have that goal. You know whether you're working on memory in. Um, grocery shopping contexts, or in, you know, list of things to do work related, you're still working on memory so that the um, treatment ingredients uh, using the RTSS model that, um, you know, you might, you should be, or hopefully applying, um, you can apply using work related tasks, even an in inpatient with patients as it's appropriate. So that was a, an, another take home for me. And then the other point that working with Brian, our VOC rehab uh, collaborator, really reinforced for me um, is the is the personalized intervention team approach you know and how it really needs everything really needs to be patient individually driven and that the interdisciplinary team that's working on helping that patient towards their goals, um, really should be different. You know, the the principles and concepts um, should be applied differently for each person. And that point really got reinforced um, working with Brian. And it was nice hearing him have the same thought about that. That was really cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um I think in you know part of the discussion too. Um, and speaking with various people about the return to work and vocational rehab um, aspect would be, um, yeah, that lack of funding, the lack of programs, uh, the lack of options, you know, all of which, uh, and I'm glad to hear a call for advocacy for, you know, a question that came up, I guess, was, is there, are there good options within more of the rural communities um, as far as return to work? Um, Is there a, a national, I guess, resources there um, anything that you've become aware of that could help people, you know, outside of these, you know, academic or urban settings? Um,
2: in my um, uh, world, it seems that it's very specific to where you're at mm. um, and that there's not one overarching national program mm. or even within our profession where you can you know, kind of some sort of repository and people will get these kinds of services. Um, I think you're right to bring up rural um, for a lot of reasons. uh, People that are residing in rural communities have all kinds of access issues. um, And that uh, while telehealth can be very helpful, it's less helpful in the return to work Mm -hmm. and that there's already uh, job um, barriers for people living in those areas, even without cognitive communication disorders. That said, an example of something that we've worked on in Oregon that I think is gonna be helpful is, um, this past year I was involved in a legislative group and we just passed, we had a Senate bill that we just passed where some money that's typically used for uh, people who are unhoused, that money will be used for uh, what we're calling uh, TBI navigators. Um, And so that anybody with a brain injury who's not employed or who's having issues can uh, receive assistance with some of these navigators. And that would be one thing they can do is look for uh, connections. um, And no matter where you live, urban, rural, um, Mm -hmm. there'll be somebody assigned to you. Um, And while work is return to work or return to productive activity is not the only, you know, we're looking at shelter, uh, all kinds of um, uh, domains that people have needs in. But those kinds of programs at a federal level where money gets diverted and includes some type of supports for community reentry um, is, I think, uh, are being done more um, and is something that we all could work
1: towards. And I might add that states seem to vary. Like, you know, every state has a state brain injury association um, overseen by the, you know, BIA of of America. And I know in some of our calls, I remember us talking about states having different opportunities based on, you know, organization and charts and, you know, so forth. Um, So I, I think maybe besides. Some federal support, state level support is definitely worth looking into in the state you're in. Um, and then, as far as the urban versus rural go, I also remember us having conversations about depending on what a patient's goals are, it, it can be that a small, um, in, you know, small sized um, place of employment it can be more motivated to take somebody back or to work with you or the VOC team. Um, for their successful return if it's a smaller group you know uh, um, and if they're they know the person like there's a working relationship if there are too many layers sometimes our group was discussing that can get in the way of things so um, again I, I think for me the takeaway was individualized consideration taking into account the context within that and what the patient's goals are. It, like uh, we talk in the paper about a clubhouse model, which is a Vogue rehab model, but it's not actually paid employment in, in any way, shape, or form. But it's an opportunity for a group of people led by brain injury survivors to work together in some kind of productive life participation way, making meaningful contributions, um, you know, um, and, and, great, and getting great satisfaction and, and joy out of that, um, is one example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I greatly appreciate, too, the, um, I don't know, I guess the direction of some of those comments uh, as far as go to the state level. Um, you know, that's one area that I've not spent a lot of my, uh, I guess, continuing ed focus or my uh, extracurricular focus is just in the state organization and understanding a bit more about how they're advocating for this. This is just an... an incredibly important topic for all the reasons stated in the paper, Um, you know, and it's also incredibly important to the state economy, you know, just having people be able to return to work. Um, It seems like a simple thing to advocate for.
1: I might also add one of the members of our group, Rick Lemoncello, who's also in Oregon, he has his cerebellum bakery and Mm. that was, you know, a grassroots effort he started um, through his university, um, which is probably another medium through which we might be able to explore more possibilities than perhaps, you know, we have to date. Um, but McKay, he's a great example of the advocacy you know, that you were speaking of and, and what he's done for the individuals who participated in that program. And you know, um, that program is our case study um, in the Return to Work paper mm-hmm. is amazing to me, absolutely amazing. Um, so, yeah. I, I agree. I think the next steps, you know, so um, it,
2: if you haven't had a chance to read, but reading the case study with uh, Rick's Um, one of the clients that worked uh, at Cerebellum. That is probably one of the best models, not just the client, but Cerebellum, Mm -hmm. of a return to work from, uh, and and these are people who have significant cognitive and communicative challenges. I think, you know, uh, Rick would be the first to say that a lot of his time gets spent trying to get funding for this nonprofit. And so what really needs to happen is systems that fund. Um, mm-hmm. and that we go the whole trajectory if we're going to put all this money and effort um, for bringing people back from extremely severe injuries. We have to, to walk the walk with them all the way back to meaningful um, activities. So um, I think finding ways to sustain programs like cerebellum would be a really important
0: goal. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, As I read that, in the paper. Um, And I've read about other programs that kind of have that same, I guess, clubhouse model. Um, It's inspiring. Um, Mm. I don't know. It's inspiring, but then, yeah, trying to sort out where to take the action um, is kind of where I get stuck. Um, So that's something I'd, I'd just like to learn more about is, you know, establishing and developing that You said Cerebellum is the name of that bakery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And getting the funding, I mean, that's interesting that you can get, you know, I guess it's at least one case of it working where getting funding through the university um, and, and, you know, where to direct patients once they're ready for, I guess, that type of work. Yeah. with a very personalized focus, right? So thinking about, uh, I I guess a a major outcome of that paper as well as many other papers is this very personal focus um, to the patient, very patient-centered, very patient-specific, thinking about return to work without cerebellum to turn to, right, without necessarily a well-funded vocational rehab program or return to work program, um, you know, working with what slps have at their disposal Uh, in my case i've got you know kind of a private room i've got access to some uh, public spaces we can go to any of the cafes that are within the hospital Um, i don't know perhaps this question is more of like how do you initiate that conversation uh, with a patient um, who seems to be appropriate Um, you know as Therese said even very early on in the inpatient setting how do you get that started how do you help kind of pull out the information to design our personalized program with each patient. Um, I kind of go with, you know, tell me about your job. Um, Tell me about what were your responsibilities. Give me kind of a job description all the while I'm writing it up. Um, Is there a more tactful way, I guess, to approach this? Especially, and this is probably a second question, but especially when, you know, return to you know uh, we'll just say like chief executive of a fortune 500 company is not that's not right around the corner like are there any pieces of advice or tips for approaching that conversation and getting that started
2: no i think um it's such a important question and you've answered the first part which is mindset um i think approaching you know just how you described being person-centered um uh you know what is it that brings you meaning if they're not going to go back to a fortune 500 is it feeling important Mm -hmm. is it feeling in charge is it feeling independent is it um or is there some tasks there that were that you particularly liked or now that this has happened to you do you feel like there's other things you never explored that you you know Mm -hmm. i think Trice brought it up about kind of what's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, the tool that SLPs have in our wheelhouse to do that is really motivational interviewing and to be skilled at that, to identify what brings meaning. And then you brought up the other part, which is, um, you know, if somebody identifies something, then um, can they do it? Um, And I think. Uh, Because we deal with a population with brain injury that often has some self-awareness issues, maybe some anosognosia, we're we're worried that it may be too ambitious. Mm -hmm. But the skills of motivational interviewing allow to have those conversations with hope, you know, what is it you like about that? Um, Would a first step be... um, doing X, Y, Z. If you couldn't do that, what would you wanna do? Um, And so um, I think sometimes it's hard to feel that a conversation um, is uh, therapy, but it's, um, as Therese and I have talked and written about, um, it's it's well within our scope of practice to provide this type of counseling that's written in our scope of practice And taking time to infuse that in each of the therapy sessions as you're helping somebody move forward um, is key. Also, you mentioned getting out of your office. What are the opportunities in your particular setting? Um, And then you bring up the very realistic issues of kind of what are the community constraints? Or is there one person in their community who, uh, has some connections or who's motivated. Um, and um, I think it doesn't have to always be the SLP on the team, but um, you know, engaging in those types of motivational interviews that identify meaningful activities, looking for opportunities, um, and uh, thinking about a stepwise progression towards something with intermediary steps along the way, that you know, in an outpatient setting, you might be able to do more than in an inpatient setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, somebody who's in a community-based rehab uh, center might be able to do different things than someone in an outpatient clinical setting. So it will change. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that provides some, if that gets at your question. Or oh. Not. Those are some ideas.
0: So much so. Um... I think you've just changed the um, next therapy visit with three of my patients. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just that first, the first question. And really, I guess it, it. a lot of my questions, you know, as a clinician, as somebody who's practicing, um, seem like they probably will get answered by me looking into motivational interviewing, um, you know, listening back to um, McKay, your interview. Uh, with this podcast in 2017, you know, that is it's this recurring theme, not just for you, but across all um, all aspects, I guess, that I'm trying to get better at, um, which is this motivational interviewing. I think that you mentioned there it's a um, it's something you can be certified in. But is there is there a fine place for people to start as far as how to? Yeah. Yeah.
2: um, there, um I highly advocate, you know, recommend if you have time and resources to take, you know, the, the workshops. Okay. That said, mm-hmm. um, sometimes the motivational interviewing gurus are a little bit zealous. And as my um, friend Don McLennan from the VA <laughs> in Minneapolis says, you know, Socrates motivational interviewing and this kind of questioning. Nobody owns this. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think, um, and I'm on a, the, a joint committee with the American Psychological Association and ASHA mm. for uh, brain injury. And the, the neuropsychologists that sit on that committee want us to be really good at these psychological supports mm. because um it's in, it it moves the patients forward wow. um uh, therese and i are involved in a project right now and we've been writing and looking at you know how you um can you know kind of even training uh, speech language pathologists and i'll let therese expand a little bit but this whole idea of how you um, can um, have these types of skills um, we've particularly been looking at therapeutic alliance but Um, uh, You know, it's now part of what's mandated in our training. So as we have students, um, you know, I think formerly these are are sort of considered supplementary or soft skills, Mm -hmm. but, um, and they're not instead of all of the kind of practice uh, behavior based interventions that we do, but um, they are active and critical ingredients in themselves to know how to help motivate, uh, clarify, um, to help um, provide hope, to work on lessening um, dissonance between what you say you want and what you do as a client, to increase um, compliance, etc. You know, it's what will make our outcomes better if we're really skilled at it. Mm -hmm. So there's so many materials now for um, SLPs. Um, What I find is that I think I'm kind of good at it because I've read a lot and then I'll watch myself on a video with Mm. a student and I'm like, oh my goodness, really? The student was way better than us. You (laughs) know, so it it is a skill in and of itself. Mm. Trees feel free. i I went on and on, as you know. We both really like this. Topic.
1: <laughs> we can talk all night. Us, so Zach, just make yourself comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I if I can, I want to give a commercial plug for the ANCDS annual meeting in Boston uh, in November. Uh, McKay and I are doing a presentation on therapeutic alliance um, after ABI, and um, I think Zach. I think, personally, that would be a great opportunity to learn more, you know, about this. And um, McKay and I are, you know, really um, trying to provide as many um, resources as possible during that presentation, so people will leave armed with information and be able to continue forward and also, as a preview of Coming Attractions, uh, the next, you know, the manuscript, our group, ANCDS TBI Writing Group, is working on right now, has to do with that as well. So um, hopefully our next publication um, will be an additional resource with lots of references. You know, I think we've, we've had some great conversations as a group talking about therapeutic alliance and how it's really, it's always existed, but we just call it something different now. And I think we've become more diligent about what it entails and and how to mindfully develop those skills you know I, I i think in in my when i was a student we talked about rogerian patient-centered care therapy right and applying those principles to our practices um, and in many ways i feel like the found, some of the foundational principles of um therapeutic alliance really come from that mm. um, and so you know, people aren't, none of us are starting with a blank slate, but I think we're just not mindfully aware of um, trying to facilitate it and establish it and realize the power we we have to facilitate it um, with our clients and fix it if it's not going well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
2: and I, I think a more recent component, something that came to mind while you were talking, Therese, is that. Um, I'm starting to talk with my students more about, based on um, writing this paper um, with the uh, ANCDS group, is rupture and repair. Mm -hmm. You don't think about that dynamic, and every clinician will have that occasionally. um, And it doesn't mean there's an argument, um, but where maybe the client's not Feeling it, so you know the, um, or they take an exception to something. You said, um, "X," you said that I um, this wasn't a realistic goal, or you hinted at that, and so maybe that's a rupture in your uh, clinical relationship that now they're not going to be able to really benefit and move forward in the types of activities that you're presenting um, without some repair. So in this paper, we give some resources. Um, some of which I were not, I was not familiar with that I found really helpful. So I'm disseminating them to my students. Um, so, um, you know, I think, again, they're these are active ingredients. They're not, instead of working on using that external aid, or they're not instead of working on this attention treatment program, mm-hmm. um, but, They're integral to whatever it is you're doing.
0: Mm -hmm. You turn to kind of discussion there of students, and that's something that's really drawn my, um, I guess, my attention to the topic of late um, is that, you know, and this is deviating a bit, probably, but that skill set of just establishing a relationship, um, that skill set of connecting on a human level and developing not only rapport, but developing that trust. Um, and I I guess that it's a skill I know that it's a skill that can be developed and it's a skill that I think maybe um, I've developed in other areas of my life and didn't really know was something that needed to be developed you know not to sound arrogant or anything but um, having that kind of observation or um, clinical supervision with a student who may not have all of those skills very well developed yet. That's been helpful, I guess, from the standpoint of just seeing it through another person's eyes, seeing how other people interact and react and respond and develop that trust and rapport and that therapeutic alliance has um, been really helpful to kind of think about it more on a, I guess, I don't want to say meta level, but you know, to think about what are the exact skills that are occurring um, that work and what are the ones that don't. Yeah, that's useful. I
2: think that's a such a good reflection. Sometimes I look at students and I think, it'd be like if someone told us, you know, I'm gonna give you a little bit of information about surgery and you're gonna have some patients who are gonna have the surgery and then, you know, maybe you've had a few classes on it already and now I'm supposed to be treating it, but it's different than a seasoned I'd be different than a seasoned medical provider, um, and uh, so, like thinking about what are the what can they do to get beyond just rapport, mm-hmm. given that this is the first person with a brain injury they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, what are our expectations, and how can we train somebody to do motivational interviewing when they have never seen a client with anosognosia with not. Awareness about their impairments, mm-hmm. and then still build trust and rapport. So I think it's these micro counseling skills. I think are really advanced, but we think of them as more basic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it so I think I think we have a lot more to do with with how, how best to train them with grad students. Um,
1: you know, and, and I would add, just sitting here listening and mm-hmm. um, participating in this great conversation. I'm, with, especially with students, I'm thinking about DEI and its influence on establishing therapeutic mm-hmm. alliances as well, or even student-teacher alliances, right? I mean, really, everything we do personally and professionally, I'm thinking, is about alliance. Um, and. Um, DEI adds another challenge, you know, that we all are working very hard to be mindfully respectful of and adjust our styles to. And I agree, McKay, especially as the, let's say the field or idea of Therapeutic Alliance grows and and expands. There's a lot more to do and think about um, than I think anyone ever has before, truly.
0: Yeah, it's like it's a very complex uh, field. (laughs) <laughs> yes it is <laughs> it's like we have to have yes, a lot of skills in a lot of different areas yeah <laughs> um well i'd like to if it's okay uh, as i look at the time i'd like to pivot um to kind of the other side of the the papers that i read in preparation for this which is um more on that kind of social communication would that be okay with with the two of you yeah i see nods okay sure um of course how do you introduce social communication to how would you recommend people introduce social communication to the patient um, who struggles with it um, or to the family of the patient who struggles with it how do you introduce it how do you define it how do you classify it you know uh, where do you begin there
1: Ooh, so that's a good question (laughs) that's a very loaded question oh sorry but I'll I'll take a stab at uh, an initial response anyway. I think the good news is that by virtue of social communication deficits, um, many of these are easily observed or experienced. Um, And so, especially with TBI survivors and frequent decreased awareness or insight into some of those deficits, People in their lives, whether it's their work life or their personal life, um, are often aware of acutely painfully Mm -hmm. um, some of these um, these challenges that people present with after um, a brain injury. And so I think that that's a nice opportunity. With a good therapeutic alliance, mm-hmm. um, to begin to broach the conversation, and I know in um, in our um, theory paper of the trilogy, mm-hmm. I like to call yeah. it the trilogy, yeah. um, we talk about a patient example of a young woman post TBI who was a real estate agent pre injury and then wants to return to work after you know her injury. Um, and um, her husband is identifying social communication issues that he's observing in her that she vehemently denies the existence of and um, again, common scenario, Mm -hmm. but that's a really nice springboard, again, with Therapeutic Alliance um, to begin to explore um, someone's concerns, work on increasing the patient's awareness and insight um, and using that as the springboard, I think for focusing on social communication deficits, in again using um, ingredients that are motivating on an individual basis mm-hmm. to that patient who, in our, that example, wants to return to you know selling real estate. And
0: with that, the springboard being the the, the husband report, is that the, sp- yes. yeah, the springboard yeah 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 okay yeah, yeah understood.
2: Well, I would just um, jump in and add. That I think it goes back to our earlier conversation of finding what's meaningful. And so mm-hmm. um, the fact that the patient has something they would like to do to return to real estate, and even if that's going to be some, you know, uh, maybe they won't do the same job, but maybe they'll be doing a similar one, or you've got some earlier steps they can do, um, that to be working on something that's of interest to the patient. So um, I think it's just really key for the social communication. It's very hard to convince somebody they need to work on a social communication issue that they don't find getting in the way of, you know, that's just not a setup for success. Um, You might be able to, you know, get somebody to agree because, you know, your child is not wanting to interact with you. Would you like to take a try at working on some of these things in order, you know, if they were motivated about that? So it's not having to have agreement of, around the necessarily the precise social communication issue to begin with, um, but having um, uh, something that's of desire that involves interacting um, mm-hmm. is, I think, the, the key and where where I think. Um, in the treatment paper, you see um, some of the key active ingredients, um, including kind of reflect, ability to reflect, converse, working on conversational conversation in context or with the individuals they will be happening with, um, kind of uh, are examples that are backed by evidence that take that springboard and help them move forward.
1: And, and maybe to provide some context um, our trilogy of social communication papers um, is number one a theory paper number two an assessment paper and number three a treatment paper so I think using this example of the young um, woman post TBI who is a you know is into real estate I um, that segue of you know her husband being aware of some issues, her denying them, I think is a nice um, transition to what we talk about in the assessment paper of, a, of social cognition, mm. and um, or excuse me, social communication and standardized and non standardized options to or strategies to explore that ways to do it. Um, and then based on that, as McKay said, you know, with information about treatment ingredients and targets um, in the therapy paper, um, with you know, is based on the assessment results, which hopefully do increase the patient's insight and awareness, then you've got your motivation and alliance to uh, for her to really want to work on them therapeutically um, as discussed in the treatment paper. So yeah
0: Yeah, with the you know, whether standardized or non-standardized assessment, I think the most powerful tool that that grants me in clinical practice is that it's not just my opinion. You know, and that's that's the that's the roadblock that I hit. You know, just about every time that I approach social communication, um, is, you know, that's just your opinion, right? I don't, I don't really care, right? And I think that's kind of what McKay's hitting on there, of you know what is this affecting in your life? What is, you know, what is the thing that's meaningful? You know, you're not talking, your kid won't really interact with you anymore, um, or your friends don't pick up the phone and don't call you back, right? Like, you've got that, that meaningful, important aspect, hopefully important, um, and then I like the way that that was then phrased of, you know, is that something that you would like to work on? <laughs> you know, giving them that choice. Uh, is an important aspect too. Yeah, I, I
1: think we were emphasizing in return when we were discussing return to work that that's something that you can target through your cognitive communication goals as an inpatient. But I think, you know, as we all know, sometimes our patients need some reality testing to increase their awareness and insight after, say, inpatient discharge. Um, and then potentially come back for some outpatient therapy that they're more motivated to engage in and benefit from. Because as you said, Zach, it's not about, I think this, you think that, Mm -hmm. so-and-so says this, I don't believe that. It's more, I tried this, it didn't work well, um, I wanna fix this because this is my livelihood, for example, or something, yeah.
0: Yeah, and also probably developing a little bit of trust from the standpoint of, you may know what's happening. You may be able to tell me what's going wrong. Um, exactly. You know, I think that yeah. family members can say that often of like, there's something not right, right? Like there's, I, I it's not, you know, we go through the domains during the evaluation, especially of, you know, attention and give examples and memory and give examples. And all that stuff can can come out clear, you know, with no report of any deficit, but then it ends with, but there's something you know, <laughs> there's something not, yeah, not going not right quite, and I don't know right? what's going on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. To be able to then provide some examples, I guess, or, um, you know, develop some trust of this guy knows what he's talking about, because um, that yeah. was probably, you know what, that is it's the eye contact. He's giving me way too much eye contact all the time. He's staring at me, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah.
2: And I think you both bring up good points you know, in the meaning, it might not be always able to do a more uh, lofty goal of, you know, real estate returning to work. Maybe in the inpatient setting, you say, you know, what matters to you right now? Well, I'm tired of having this babysitter, the one-on-one person sit here staring Mm -hmm. at me. And maybe that develops into some type of social communication goal. Well, when you're yelling, um, that is why the person has to be there. Um, and maybe we could work on some strategies to help you before you feel like you need to yell. So, you work on some type of behavior regulation that's tied to something they want, which is they feel super annoyed by having the assigned uh, person to watch them, you know, or, um, you know, all of the, you know, and you may be able to do something different than. know you'd have different goals in an outpatient setting where um you're saying the uh um, frequent one we have we have a adolescent clinic it's you know i want to go on a date Mm -hmm. you know they're kind of um, and so are we going to be signing them up on hinge probably not Mm -hmm. but we're going to be saying well you know what what does it look like to be able to go on a date somebody and we might be able to work on some behaviors that will transfer not just to that goal but to other things. but you know regardless of where they're at it's trying to find something to open the door Mm -hmm. that even if they have limited self-awareness they're going to be able to um, that you're, you're looking for buy-in and some low-hanging fruit, which we all need if we're going to put effort and resources into, you know, therapy is super hard work. Um, and I think that's a really important skill for people working in the brain injury field.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's something I, I don't, in, in the time that I've practiced, maybe I've forgotten that a bit too, of therapy is really hard work. of this is easy Mm. you know i mean i I think about it so often from my perspective but thinking about it from the patient perspective of what's needed there yeah
1: yeah it's hard work for everybody um if it's done well right uh
0: yeah 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 well um like to just extend a thank you to to both of you for joining us um thank you for sharing this excellent conversation and expertise that you can share with all of us um, and for taking the time out of your um, your busy schedules to be here. Um, so, McKay Solberg and Therese O'Neill-Perozzi, uh, thank you very much for being here.
1: You're welcome. Our pleasure. Yeah. It was fun. Yes, thank-, thank you, Zach.
2: <laughs> Agreed. Thank you for a really stimulating conversation and thank you to all of those serving clients with cognitive communication mm-hmm. needs who took time to listen to us.
0: Yeah, thanks to the listeners too.
1: Thank you, everybody. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit our website at ancds.org.